This is Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Stars host, Jana Levin. I'm also a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University and director of sciences here at Pioneer Works, where we're hosting this show. Very excited to be here. We've never done a show from here before, so this is awesome. I want to introduce my guest, co host, Matt Kirshen, comedian and host of Probably Science Podcast. Hey. Hi, Matt. Hey, Jana. <laughs> Welcome. How was your nap? It's, it's been good. Yeah. I, I came in on the red eye. Just in case. Yeah, you had a little nap. Right had a little before. sleep on. You've got some very good, good couches here at Pioneer Works. I'm feeling great. Okay, excellent. And I'm very excited to welcome for the first time on the show our expert scientist, Professor Joe Patterson. And I have to say about Joe, he is many things. He's a professor of astronomy at Columbia University. He is also, I think you said, director of the Center for Backyard Astrophysics. Super cool citizen science, well before its time well before citizen science was even a phrase, right? Cool. Absolutely. And also, my first astronomy professor. <laughs> <laughs> I remember very fondly. And she got pretty good grades. <laughs> <laughs> I got me. I would climb into the back of the classroom in Pupin at Columbia with those stacked levels, you know? They're so steep with, like, my big cup of coffee, and I'd be like... But you are such an amazing professor, Joe. Really, just the greatest. So thank you for that. A little small applause for Joe. <laughs> Welcome to our show. I'm also wearing my eclipse glasses because this is the day of the August 21st, 2017 eclipse. You know what I loved in the 1918 newspapers when they talked about the eclipse that ran from the Pacific to the Atlantic? They said, forecasted the next eclipse of its kind in 2017. Isn't that kind of crazy? that the people at the time would have been reading those papers? Yeah, well, I think eclipses were probably very, very exciting then. And actually, the next year, there was an mm -hmm. eclipse in the Indian Ocean, which is one I know that you know quite a bit about because it's the one that verified Einstein's prediction. 1919. 1919. Yeah, when Eddington went off the coast of Africa. That's yeah. right, and, and uh, it was also the significance of 1919 was magnified because... Mm -hmm. Of course, the armistice had just been signed, and yeah. it was a British team verifying a theory by a German scientist which overthrew, overthrew Newton's theory right. of gravity. And this is six months after World War I, when That's the countries exactly. were killing each other. Exactly. And they're like, it's like out of the shadow of the war into science the shadow wins. of the moon. Science, science <laughs> so, yeah. can, you tell, can you tell me what, what it was that they verified? So this is... This is something that Einstein yeah. made a prediction, general relativity, and yeah. then the, something happened during the eclipse that they could use to test one of these predictions. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, Joe, Joe can tell the story. Okay. Uh, yeah, one of the predictions, uh, light, light, of course, carries energy. Uh -huh. And uh, Einstein said that energy and mass are equivalent. It's famous equation, E equals mc squared. So if it carries energy, it carries mass. If it has mass, then it means gravity must affect it, must affect light. Never really been thought about before, but in Einstein's theory, uh, an int a strong source of gravity should bend light. And so, but there were no sort of strong sources of gravity around at the time, except they, people thought, well, during, this, during a solar eclipse, if you look at the position of a star, take a photograph of the sun in solar eclipse, you can see some stars around the edges uh, because it's so dark out. Uh, and Look at the positions of those stars, and if the light has been bent, those positions will have shifted from their normal positions. So you you'd know where the star should be just because of where it has been in its trajectory right, in space. Right, because of astronomy. Absolutely. And then, <laughs> and then the sun is suddenly in the way, and that light from the star would have slightly curved around it. Right. That's so if there, if there hadn't been an eclipse, you'd be blinded by the light of the sun. So, like in this case, I think they looked at the Hades cluster. And so it was directly behind the sun, and usually you'd be completely blinded by the light of the sun, and what would you know, right? But with the total eclipse, the sun goes dark, and you have this opportunity to see this thin vapor of light, right, just come around the bend when and you know just, it's behind the sun. Right, so you're just able to see a tiny bit of this star that yeah. you should never be able to see because there yeah. should be an entire exactly. star between yeah. them. Yeah, yeah exactly. but I love what you were saying in the, you know, 
opening, which is that this was really a tremendous moment for people to crawl out of this hideous mm-hmm. patriotism, right, nationalism, and, um, and instead to feel like citizens of one place, you know, to one be, planet. I mean, to be fair, Einstein later left Germany and went to America, and then that was part of the Allied team, so we got him back. <laughs> so I'm still, I'm still claiming Einstein as part of Team Allies. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, amazingly, Eddington is really the one who catapulted Einstein's fame in the English-speaking world. I mean, that was really the event, right? And, and, um, and then Einstein becomes incredibly famous. It's on the covers of all the newspapers, and, um, and that's the cleverest experiment I can think of from an eclipse. But there's some really amazing experiments now, which are probably deeply clever, but just somehow don't have the singular historic placement. You know, so what do people do now to, to uh, scientifically, to, uh, from an eclipse? Like, what is scientifically valuable? I mean, we had this eclipse today. It was incredible. You had 4,000 people out at Columbia. Yep. It was amazing. Yep. How was your view, by the way? Did you get clouds? Uh, you know, uh, it was sort of it was sort of partly cloudy. Yeah. Uh, but um, gosh, you know, there was just very little. Everyone was very elated at this. I event. know. It, it it hadn't <laughs> happened in such a long time, yeah. uh, and people for for reasons that you know amaze me and delight me. Uh, people are um, people react with enormous glee yeah. at this sort of scientific spectacle in the sky. Yeah. Um, so you didn't expect 4,000 people. Uh, yeah. I, what did I, you expect? I expected maybe about 250 people. Okay. I started to worry about like 700 people coming or something like that, yeah. but I did not expect thousands. That was really fantastic. And it was exciting, right? Did people, they got into it, even when the clouds were there and then it would come back? Yeah, they were, well, people, they'd come with their friends and yeah. they'd look for glass. We, we, we brought 500 glasses. So yeah, I stole some of your glasses. So you had 500 uh, minus about 70. Okay, well, <laughs> there you go. So there's you seven. gave them to me personally. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I remember it now. I remember a lot has happened since yesterday. But um, yeah, so they disappeared pretty fast, but people yeah. uh, shared them around. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you don't sit there looking at it for four hours. No, absolutely I mean, not. Yeah, right. the only one so you, that did was me. It's good to share them. It was me because I kept people kept needing help with the telescope and yeah. frankly, I'm still getting some after images in my eyes. Oh a no! Bit, but oh, no. But I think That's I'll be okay. I think I'll be okay in a few hours. But uh, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was, you were it was, using like the finder of the telescope without no, a filter. Well, no, the technique is we were just uh, use your hand in the finder uh, okay. there and find it and then right. So the hand, it so, back. so the finder casts an image of the sun on your hand. Yeah, and that's how you know you're pointing in the right direction. That's how you know yeah. you're pointing in the right direction. And of course, when the kids come up, some of the the, the littlest of children are the most violent treaters of telescopes. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of mathematical law there. And so they would sort of bash the telescope, and you'd have right. to re- yeah. orient it there. Yeah, but it was. Uh, but that's great to have that many people getting excited at a young age and. No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's, I asked... Oh, sorry, Matt, No, no, please. go for it. No, I was just going to say, I asked you originally, what are the scientific experiments that people do now from an eclipse? So we did it for fun and elation and excitement. Yeah, everyone was happy. It was my first time seeing an eclipse in America as well, which is cool. Like normally, yeah. as you know, I'm normally like in a jungle somewhere tricking people <laughs> into making them my god. Uh, or me their god, rather. Uh, I mean, that's the best use of any eclipse, scientifically, to c- trick mm-hmm. Yeah, and and has it worked in the past? Yeah, I, I'm now the god of quite a few different cultures. And it, also, a little tip, you don't have to wait for a solar eclipse. Lunar eclipse work perfectly well. In terms of yeah. intimidating yeah, you Columbus, just, Columbus found that out in 1523. Yeah. And oh, one of right? the many good things he did. <laughs> so wait, what was 1523? Well, he, uh, no, it was, it was an earlier one. It was 1504. It's 1504. Okay. He knew there was going to be a, a lunar eclipse on uh-huh. a particular night. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, set up an assembly line uh, to all the local people to supply mm-hmm. him with a certain amount of sugar uh-huh. and gold and uh, uh-huh. whatnot. And, and then they would get those cardboard glasses? Mm-hmm. No, like no, 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 he, no. Uh, he would have loved to have them. But, but you know, he basically said, look, you know, your, your shipments have been a little sparse lately. Mm-hmm. If you don't uh, pick up the pace... Uh, I'm going to basically blot out the moon tomorrow night. And they said, oh I don't think so, buddy. I don't think. And, and, uh, and then he did. Oh, my God. That's, and that's so a good trick. so he got a lot of cooperation after that. Wow. Yeah. What most people don't know is there wasn't actually an eclipse planned. He really did have that power. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> and you've learned to harness it. Okay, I'm going to ask I'm Joe you for the third track, time. Yes. The well, third time, I'm going to get Joe to answer this question. Good. Fun and games aside, what is the real science that yes. real scientists are doing? Yes. Okay. There's not, you know, right now the solar eclipse is primarily a mm-hmm. place where people go crazy. Lives are changed. My life was changed with my first first eclipse. But scientific experiments are being done mm-hmm. primarily to study the corona. Mm-hmm. Um, the corona is never studied as sensitively as when the sun is blotted, when the photosphere yeah. of the sun is blotted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and while you can do it a little bit from the tops of mountains where you get above the dust layer, and then you could kind of study the outer layer mm-hmm. of the corona because some of the bright blue sky is muted uh, up mm-hmm. there, uh, the lower corona you can never see. Hmm. But during an eclipse you can because when the moon fits over the sun like a glove mm-hmm. and you get the entire photosphere blocked yeah. from the, then you can look at the lower corona and yeah. you can see... Well, the structure in the lower corona. One of the things that we'd like to know, for example, is um, uh, what supports the corona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, most people have seen pictures of the corona. Most of them are actually taken during eclipses, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And um, uh, so you have this big thing in the sky, big luminous yeah. thing in the sky, that you'd think that it ought to collapse down on the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, the gravity of the sun's pretty intense, yeah. so why doesn't yeah. that gas... You know, yeah, so it's like some on. kind of plasma, magnetic plasma, yeah, magnetized it's plasma. It's very hot gas. And it's like frothing. Fro- it's always it's, like churning that's and correct. frothing. It's something I heard just last week because of all the articles about the eclipse. I didn't realize that the corona is hotter than the surface of the sun. It's quite, By it's, a lot. The, out, the hottest parts are 100 million K. The, Kelvin. Uh, the Kelvin. With people speak only Fahrenheit. In our audience. Well, I'm not, right? not oh. going to attest that nobody speaks Celsius or Kelvin, but I'm going to say it's like tens of millions of, of Fahrenheit. Is that about right? <laughs> okay, we'll double it approximately. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, about 10 million uh, Kelvin uh, for the uh, center of the sun, but yeah. uh, about 100 million for the outside. So it is. It's hotter. Parts of it are hotter. Which is crazy because the center of the sun is where all the nuclear reactions yeah. happen. So like, it's hot enough in the center of the sun to have a nuclear bomb. Right yeah, and nuclear the corona, fusion. and then like the atmosphere gets down to like ten thousand Fahrenheit or something like that. The atmosphere is about ten thousand Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah and then it goes way up at the corona. Yeah. So nobody knows why. Nobody really. Maybe knows they wh- will after this e- eclipse. That's a possibility. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some kind of way to generate energy into into the atmosphere, uh, and uh, we have, of course, we have an atmosphere which uh, mm-hmm. also rises in temperature slightly when you go yeah. farther up at first. I did go, not know that. Yeah. When you go up to about 100,000 feet, it's dropping, 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 dropping. Then above 100,000 feet, it starts to climb a little bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, Is that because of like sunlight hitting? Well, yeah, it's because some of, the sunlight, of some of the sunlight actually gets absorbed up there. Right. And, it gets, and it gets absorbed directly. And there's not much matter up there. So you absorb the sunlight. There's not much matter. And so yeah. it's fairly, fairly hot. Now, even though it's hot, if you went there and it went outside, yeah, well, you'd die immediately. But you know, I don't know how you would die exactly. But but it, um, say you had a support system. But if you didn't die system. that way, yeah, if you had a support system, yeah, you'd find it cold because, of course, the density is so low right. that the amount of you know collisions on your body. So these particles right. have more energy than they would do a little bit lower down, but they're hitting you less frequently. Very right, less exactly, frequently. rarely. Yeah. Yeah. So is the corona responsible for the solar f- winds? Uh, the corona itself, we don't know the answer okay. to that. So like, so like the, aurora borealis and the northern lights yeah. are coming from solar winds striking our own magnetic field. And so it's unknown if that originates from the corona. Uh, well, it, it, it originates in the same place that the corona originates, but the present, mm-hmm. I think, uh, most common yeah. theory is that they come out of holes in the huh. corona. The corona has holes in it. Huh. And so basically because some time-lapse movies have been yeah. taken of basically streams of material coming out in, through these holes in the yeah. corona, and they go out to, well, they go out to Houston, they go out yeah. to the whole solar system. Amazing. And they eventually cause uh, the northern lights and the southern lights, mm-hmm. and they get to Jupiter, mm-hmm. and eventually they leave the solar system. So you were mentioning your first solar eclipse changed your life. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, it was... Uh, 1970. But you had seen an eclipse before, just not a total. Is well, that right? that's right. As a child growing yeah. up in Japan, uh-huh. I, I had seen a uh, about a 90 percent uh, uh-huh. eclipse, and um, so you didn't stare at it, did you? I, I don't know what I did. I, some somebody <laughs> gave me 
a piece mm-hmm. of glass or something, mm-hmm. and I. I can't remember anything about it. I just do remember when 1970 rolled around, I thought, well, you know, I see a 90%, mm-hmm. you know, should I go down to Virginia to mm-hmm. see a, 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 a total, see yeah. 100%? Yeah. What could the 10% be? Yeah. And uh, I, I just, it was just graduated from college, and my, um, one of the math teachers there said, it doesn't work that way. So he was a math teacher. Had to had, had to, to work it. that way, right? So we go so we go down there, and uh, so on March the seventh, nineteen seventy, it was totally clear. Uh, it was an experience that changed my life. It was, hmm. I think, for many people who see a total eclipse, it's sort of a marker in their life. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, your birth, your death. <laughs> Your marriage, Wait, perhaps. the solar eclipse comes after death? <laughs> Are you doing this know. chronologically, that, 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 Joe? I'm very confused. Well, this is science. We wait, don't know wait, everything. Wait, you know? birth, death, then marriage? <laughs> well, okay. These things can be rearranged in various orders depending on your metaphysics or your lifestyle. But the uh, uh, anyway, so you know, I became an eclipse junkie then. I saw the next eclipse. Have you chased many? Uh, I've only chased four. Uh, four. Oh, I don't guess I. Ca- I guess I count this one because I live okay. in New York City. And yeah. I, I'm. Yeah. You I'm opted here. not to go. I opted not to go. Um, it. You know. It. It is a kind of. Exp- there are certain things you only need to do once, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, and is I, death I, one of them? I would be a little afraid. I would be a little afraid <laughs> that if I if I went to another total eclipse. It would I, alter I, it, you. It would no, no, no. It would just be, it would just be some kind of letdown. It uh, would just be. Yeah. I did it before. It's the same. <laughs> you know, I can't. It's not. I don't know. Yeah. Because I never saw the the second one. I saw was very spoiled by clouds. Right. The third one, the same. Right. So. But uh, what happens if you do have one that's even better than the first one? Then you end up. Then you're stuck. Then you have to spend your entire life saving up to the next eclipse. And oh yeah, it's even worse. It's true. And you're like, all right. That out. <laughs> it turns out to be better than the first one. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess it just gets better oh, every time. Now I have to. That's my life now. I have to put teaching on technical and research addiction. on hold. That's the technical definition of addiction. Yeah. yeah. But there are people who chase eclipses all the time some people I mean, have seen 50 that's insane there's, a, there's about one a year somewhere yeah. on the earth one, yeah. one partial or one total no there's about one total eclipse a year somewhere really? on the Earth's surface yeah mm-hmm. about one summer some. so do you want to tell us why it's so rare why, why don't we have it monthly yeah why isn't that every time there's a new moon when the sun is basically behind the moon in some, to some extent, right? Um, so it goes dark. Why don't we have a, a total eclipse okay. every month? Yeah. So uh, if the moon orbited in exactly the same plane as the sun, mm-hmm. uh, then indeed, every time there was a new moon, it would just fit right over the sun like a glove, have an yep. eclipse. You have to turn the lights on if you're driving. Yep. You know, and then after a while, people would think of it as... I don't know, a nuisance, perhaps. Right, they'd be like, oh, just, this again. It'd be something they just list next to the weather. Right, something just like, like, newspaper, the like phase imagine of the moon. if there was only a full moon once every hundred yeah. years. We'd be like, there'd be yeah, parties right. to go see the full moon. But, We'd be like howling but at it the would, moon. It would, just, it would just list it in the paper, just like right. sunrise, sunset, right. eclipse. It hasn't been a full moon since 1918. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so the very, yeah. so that's what it would be if it were in the same plane. Right. But the moon's orbit is tilted by five degrees. Mm-hmm. It's five degrees, okay? So the moon is half a degree in diameter. So, that's a lot. so it misses. So, yeah, so it misses like nine tenths of the time. And so, so each time it goes around and crosses the orbit of the Earth, it's, yeah. it's not necessarily new moon. Yeah, uh, well, there's a technical definition of yeah. new moon when it's sort of exactly you know, right. above or below the sun right. or at right. the sun. Okay. So that's the technical definition of okay. new moon. And we, we, so we do say there is a new moon, but, but it's not exactly right. the newest of all new moons. So we're going to, Matt, please. Oh, are we about to go into a break? We were going to go into a break, but if, if you... I if have you a very to... quick question, and that yeah. is it, it's just pure coincidence, right, that the moon happens to exactly ah, fit over. you're going to hold that for the, after the break. Okay. Okay. Matt has a question when we come back. Stay tuned. Star Talk All-Stars. We'll be back after the break.
Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm here with my guest Matt Kirshen. Hey, Matt, say hi. Our comedian co-host and Joe Patterson, professor of astronomy at Columbia. Joe, Matt had a question for you right before the break that I interrupted. Let's you start did. It See again. if you can work out what it is. People are probably already ahead of me, depending on whether they left that little bit in. <laughs> but uh, is it? Am I right in thinking it's just coincidence that the moon fits exactly over the sun, or is there any greater reason why an why it's exactly the right size for an eclipse? I, I, I guess I guess it can only be coincidence. Yeah, I can't think of any uh, reason that uh, that you know one half a degree, which is the angle that the sun, both the sun and the moon have. Uh, you know, I, I guess the only thing I think of is if it were something smaller, if the moon were smaller than it is. Uh, or bigger than it is, it may not have been, the orbit might not have been stable. Right. Every orbit has to hang around for four and a half billion years because we're now talking, we're having this conversation, four and a half billion years after all these events took place that arranged the solar system. <laughs> right. So everything that you arranged has to be stable. And there's certain things that are not very stable, like if the moon is farther away, a lot farther away than its present distance, then um, basically Jupiter, Saturn could, you know, occasionally sort of tug it out and we might lose mm. our moon. Oh, right. Yeah. So the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun. Is that right? So it also... 400, yeah. 400. So it also happens to be 400 times closer. Yeah. And that, like, my thumb is a lot smaller than the moon, but I can keep it really close to my eye and I can cause a total eclipse of the sun this way, right? Yeah, you absolutely can. It's yeah. very instructive to do it too, actually. Yeah. You you get a feeling uh, on a clear day, on a cloudy day, it's not interesting yeah. <laughs> at all. But on a clear day, you can just do that and uh, it's a measure of exactly how clear the day is. Because oh, sometime, sometimes you can see the blue uh, going all the way to the edge of your thumb. That's a really, really Huh. clear day huh. and that's how solar astronomers when they pick their observatory that's right. how they you know they're going they're, they're all on mountaintops yeah and you know it, there's a lot of people yeah. like sticking their thumbs in the air and so the big thumbing. difference with the with the lunar with the moon eclipsing the sun and a solar eclipse in my thumb is that i cast a much tinier shadow in the entire u.s is not excited about the shadow cast by my thumb. <laughs> is that fair to say? So well, the moon no. casts a 70 mile wide shadow that we can all share. Yeah. But in principle, I could do this every day and be like, woo, it's an eclipse of the sun. Well, but this is an interesting <laughs> thing because it, this, what it also means is that the angular size, you know, it just so yeah. happens that humans have an arm yeah. This is and a thumb, a, uh -huh. an arm that is long enough and yeah. a thumb that is wide enough yeah. to replicate that particular half a degree number. I certainly do. She does. <laughs> sure, her proportions are mo fairly normal. <laughs> oh, skip the fairly, brother. Let's not get into this in a podcast. <laughs> so would it be possible... If, like, if you wanted to do some of the experiments that you normally only have to wait till an eclipse to do, to send up into space a telescope and a blocker. Like there is a, one. Okay. Yeah. There is an experiment where they fake an eclipse all the time. So with they this have one, one telescope in space pointing it's at the sun. And, that and it has a, do you remember what it's called? I can't remember what it's called. No, ah, sorry, apologies yeah. to the PI on that particular experiment. <laughs> but I mean, there's something that is supposed to be spectacular about the moon doing it. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but in terms of coronal physics and studying it. But I have another question about coincidences. So I've heard a theory, and I know it's just a theory that it's not that well substantiated, that um, early in the Earth's formation, an asteroid slammed into the planet, a big one, and sloughed off the moon, basically, out of Earth stuff, yeah. and created the moon. The moon settled into a spheroidal shape, the Earth settles into a spheroidal shape, and it also tilts the Earth. So it creates not only our lunar system, but the seasons. Have you heard this theory? Um, yes. Uh, what, the, what's your What's your feeling on it? Well, you know, I, know, I haven't read the papers on it. Yeah. I, I know when I first heard about it, I, I thought it was uh, a stretch, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know why you need to have a special mechanism to make the moon. Because there are moons all over all, the place. There are moons all over the solar system. And yeah. Uh, are there going to be special mechanisms for all those other things? On mm -hmm. the other hand, the moon's a little, the moon, our moon's a little different because the Earth-Moon system is a kind of sister 
brother relationships there. They're almost, there. They're almost the same compared to the ratio. Jupiter has just a bunch of tiny things going on. Yeah, so Jupiter it. has, what, dozens of moons. Yeah, it has, I think, uh, at least 28 named Insane. moons, actually. Yeah, and they're much, much, much smaller than Jupiter because Jupiter is, like, huge. Yeah. But the moon's, what, a quarter the size of the Earth. That's not that much smaller. That's, like, in the zone. Yeah. Like, I'm a quarter your size. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, you know, interstellar travelers, if they're zooming in on the solar system, uh, they would be, their eye would be caught by the Earth-Moon system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, you know, none of us knows exactly what caused life on Earth. Right. Uh, but um, anyway, they, I think they, they could actually uh, consider it a good habitat for life, actually, because of the Moon. So this tilt that the Earth has is also part of the way the eclipses work and the complexity of it and where they land on the earth. Um, and this tilt is also really important for the seasons. Do you think the tilt of the earth is important for emergence of life on the earth? I mean, well, could it be, so, so, so instead of the earth facing straight up when it orbits the sun, it actually points towards the sun. Yeah. And, and, and it's the reason why it's summer in the Northern hemisphere and yeah. winter in Australia and vice versa. At the same yeah, time. Yeah, well, if you had a tilt, if you had no tilt, mm-hmm. or if you had like a 90 degree tilt, yeah. like Uranus has a 90 degree is tilt. Is it? Is it straight it's up? It's 88 down? and a half oh, wow. degree or something is like that. Is it like the only one of the planets? It's the only one that's really close to 90. So if it was 90, then what would happen is the equatorial regions yeah. would be hot all the time. Right. And the polar regions would be, be cold all the time. Extremely cold all the time, mm-hmm. although the sun would always so be. So no on. seasons. There'd be no seasons, or, or I know they might call them seasons, but you'd have to travel to get to the, you know. Right. Yeah. And um, so that can't be good for life, all, mm-hmm. because life generally, I don't know if life needs changes, and needs really seasons, yeah. but it does sort of need, the hottest of temperatures on Earth and the coldest of temperatures on Earth don't seem to be very favorable hmm. for life. But not necessarily primitive life. Primitive life might, uh, might uh, like heat more. Do you think that we're going to discover other primitive life in the solar system? Well, I doubt it. Uh, I can't think of where it would be exactly. You doubt it? Not on the moons? Other moons? Like you were saying of Saturn, uh, well, Jupiter? Uh, it's a lot of moons. And they're Earth-sized, some of them. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm, I'm not suggesting they, they should all uh, uh, be... Uh, Habitable? Uh, ha- uh, no, uh, inhabitable. Uh, I'm not, okay. Not, I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, there's, the prospects are, are gloomy, uh, but they're... Um, they're not as optimistic. We can't be as optimistic as, say, 100 years ago. I don't know if you remember there was a famous... 100 years ago, I don't remember that well. I have, like, a vague well? memory. Oh, 100 years ago, it was great. What about it you, was, Matt? Well, Were you drinking a lot back then? <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. I have been around 100 years, but close. Okay? So back in the day, everybody knows about the Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, yes. the solo trip across the Atlantic, and he did it for a cash prize of whatever it was, $50,000, which was a lot of money at the time. Well, there was a Frenchman at the time who put out a cash prize Uh to anybody who would discover uh, intelligent life outside the earth. And various people, and, but there was a provision is you have to find the intelligent life from some other civilization with the exception of Mars. Because he thought it would be too easy. Too easy. Too easy to find intelligent life on Mars. <laughs> and so, you, gotta, you know, I'm not going to part with my 100,000 francs for... Yeah, Just to for bring that. it back to eclipses, can't you see eclipses from Mars, but with different bodies? I think, well, didn't the they rover have, of course, see? Well, they have some very small moons uh, on Mars, Phobos and Deimos. Uh-huh. Uh, they orbit really fast. Uh, do they cast shadows on Mars? I think the answer is no. They're, I think they're too inclined they're too or something. Small. They're oh, they're too, too small. small. Yeah. Okay. Now, the real adventure on eclipses is Jupiter. Yeah. Because th- those moons are moderately big and they're close in. So mm. on any one night, people with a, with a sort of a small telescope, yeah. portable telescope, uh, you can train it on Jupiter and the cha- your chances of getting... Uh, seeing a little dark spot move mm-hmm. on Jupiter are moderately good. They're like mm-hmm. 10 or 20 percent on a given night. Wow. So if seven nights, you, you'll see several of them. Wow. So, yeah. And that's just one of Jupiter's many moons just eclipsing yeah. a bit of Jupiter. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the four big moons that do it. Right. Yeah. And one of them, it races around really fast, and so it produces a lot of... You can actually, if you follow with a telescope with a lot of patience, astronomers are famous for, 
Uh, <laughs> and you can actually, from hour to hour, you can see it move on the planet. So apparently, though, it's very hard to get solar glasses there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really hard. And a good place <laughs> like to stand. Like worse than getting them in New York City. Actually, what happens yeah. if you, like, Jupiter's a gas giant, right? Does it have any kind of solid rock, or is it just gas? Is it collected? Would you just sink oh, into Jupiter? Yes, you would. Jupiter, the surface of Jupiter is, uh, uh, if, you, if you tried to you know, land on it, what would happen is your spacecraft would just kind of keep, keep going until you got to a place where your density was about equal to the density of the and, local surroundings. And that's where and that's you would just balance. the floating point. That's just the yeah, that would be the floating point, and you would just sort of float like there. Like the Dead Sea. Yeah, or like, <laughs> it would be like the Dead I'm just sea. thinking about when I went scuba diving years back, and you just, a lot of scuba diving is equalizing your density until you stay at a specific height. Is that right? Or a specific depth, I guess okay. is the correct term, but yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. just, you're not meant to, you're not meant to swim up or down, you just increase or decrease the amount of air in your jacket, and you just. So you're well prepared for a trip to Jupiter. There you go. So you're the first, we're sending you. Yeah, so you're, I think, I think with my basic open water certification from 15 years ago, I'm more than qualified to be the first human on Jupiter. Agreed, or qualifications in Jupiter. mean you, nothing anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, th I think the most important thing nowadays is just believing you can do it. Yeah, you just, <laughs> just express your opinion on the web. Uh, yeah. But I was going to follow Every up. opinion is equally valid, Jana. It's true, in the comments section on yeah. Amazon. <laughs> so, Joe, you said something which I think is really interesting about your work, which is you said astronomers are known for their patience. And, um, and some of your research is based on um, things exploding. Yeah. Things exploding, cannibalizing, you know, the kind of stuff that's really fun to do in the lab, like blow things up <laughs> or smash them together. And, um, and, but you don't do it in the lab. You kind of wait patiently for, for nature to do these things. So tell me about one of, like, let's, let's pick up cataclysmic variables here. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, well, these are star. They're they're very close binary stars. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, two two distinct stars mm -hmm. which are orbiting around each other, typically every few hours. Okay, so in other words, a year in that mm -hmm. binary would be say two hours. So these are immense things moving incredibly quickly. That's right. Yeah. One of them is one of them is a kind of a uh, a fairly normal star, but a very low mass star, like one fifth of a solar mass. Uh -huh. say. And the other one is, is around one solar mass, but it's tiny. It's just the size of the Earth. So is it a dead star? It's a dead it's star. It's already had its long life. It's a dead star. This, this one is, uh, this particular one's called the White Dwarf. Um, and it's, uh, it's got the um, uh, size of the Earth, excuse me, the size of the Earth, the mass of the Sun. So the density is tremendous. And, so uh, did it did it have a supernova event or did it blow up? Did it like it had a long life it had as a, long, a star? It had a long life. Then, the sun the sun will become one of these. Oh, so it, so it just sort of it just sort of distends. Yeah, the sun the sun will you know slough off its outer layers, mm -hmm. vaporizing and its inner part because its outer layers will uh, be responding to the inner layers that get very hot in the yeah. later stages of life, and so it kind of drives off the outer yeah. layers. What's left is the inner layer, which is a little bit in our case it'll be about half a solar mass half the mass will okay. be expelled the other half okay will be there. so then it'll just sort of quietly and then it just gets really done it tries to collapse it tries to collapse but then what happens is that the electrons kind of crystallize actually mm -hmm. they sort of form a lattice hmm. so a lot i mean we're surrounded by things that have crystallized mm -hmm. you know yeah. rocks and they become hard they become resistant very hard to compression and absolutely mm -hmm. a white dwarf would be quite a bit harder than than the hardest diamond hmm. and um can anyway, so there are these things, that. they're going around uh, each other, and uh, what happens is the gravity from the white dwarf is so strong, mm -hmm. rips off matter from the other star, falls down onto the white dwarf, and the, that matter is hydrogen, it builds up. Well, hydrogen, as mm -hmm. we have known since about 1950, yeah. hydrogen will explode. If you, if you put enough hydrogen at okay. a high enough temperature, okay. it explodes. So, so you get a like a nuclear weapon. It's exactly like a thermonuclear weapon. Okay. Only it is all over the surface of the star. Mm -hmm. All over the surface. Mm -hmm. If it were at the center, it would blow the star up. 
Okay. But there is no hydrogen at the center. Okay, so... The reason is the gravity is so strong in this star that the center is iron, Mm -hmm. and then out beyond that is, you know, magnesium, Uh you know, silicon, and then carbon, and then... Great natural resources. All of these things. You can't get to them. You can't get to it. Absolutely. And it's all crystallized, and you have that hydrogen. So the hydrogen blows up Mm -hmm. about every, in the case of the star that fascinates me the most, about every 30 years it happens. Oh, really? So it's constantly cannibalizing its companion? Constantly cannibalizing and then, its But companion. only and every, every 30 years does it like hit criticality? Every 30 years it hits criticality. It's not like, a cl- it's not like clockwork. Okay. Sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 40. <laughs> but uh, about every 30 years it's happened six times in the last 140 years. Wow. And, uh, the, and just the recent one just a few years ago. And, uh, and then what happens that there is, it expels all the gas around it. Mm-hmm. It expels all the gas that lay on the surface, all the hydrogen gas that didn't get burned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also ablates the companion. It so it just blows it, what, it? Yeah, it kind of blows away the outer parts of the companion. Just, <laughs> just a shell. Just a so bit. I'm just imagining like this hairless, sad creature. Yeah. <laughs> just a sad. No, it's actually really good for the other star's complexion. <laughs> Like I, you, you guys Is have a like very positive look on these things. We call it a mutual suicide pact. <laughs> because what happens is, because the secondary, the only reason this is happening is the secondary is feeding. It's feeding the, the white dwarf, and then the white dwarf is thanking it by basically sort of blowing it apart. So it's, I mean, this is how you repay me. This is a metaphor for life. This is what? This is how you repay me. Yeah. After all I've given but to it you. But ju- it just keeps going because they don't learn. Okay, I give I, you all this hydrogen, you just throw it back in my face. I really want to take up this uh, tension between optimism and pessimism, you know, the apocalypse <laughs> and the regeneration of the complexion in the next segment. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break, come back to... Uh, Star Trek All-Stars, soon. We'll be here. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I am not Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> but I am Jan 11. Uh, I know. Welcome back. I feel like I have to do that again. <laughs> I don't think that's sustainable. I don't think we, could, we can use it. Um, can you shove in another plug for probably science as well and feel redoing the intro? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Thank- um, welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Jan Eleven. I'm here with my co-host Matt Kirshen, comedian and co-host of Probably Science. Hey. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Thanks Jana. for coming all this way. I've been on your show a bunch. You have. We have to do it again. You have. You're it's our go-to fun. astrophysicist. <laughs> yeah, we haven't done an eclipse show. We'll have you know, to do that. We'll do it again. Anytime there's any kind of black hole story or anything like that, we're like, ah, we're stuck, <laughs> Jana, help. You guys have called me like in the middle of the night. Seriously, I've been lying on the couch and Skyped with you guys, and it's been like good material. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we've we got a three-hour time difference as well. It's not like <laughs> we're know, podcasting exactly. at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> and we're also here with our expert scientist, Professor Joe Patterson, professor of astronomy at Columbia University, and also the director, right? of the Center for Backyard Astrophysics. I love that. What do you guys do for backyard astrophysics? Well, we're a collection of about 100 mm-hmm. people scattered around the world, mm-hmm. mostly amateur astronomers. There's a mm-hmm. few uh, pro- professionals sprinkled in there, but mostly amateur astronomers with sophisticated telescopes in their backyards. Mm-hmm. And um, there are people who, you know, they started out in astronomy and looking at the moon and looking mm-hmm. at the moons of Jupiter. Yeah. And, is couple, that how you started out? Galaxy, absolutely. That's yeah. how I started out. Yeah. And, uh, and then after a while, they thought, well, you know, maybe I could do science with the telescope. Yeah. Yeah. And the answer, Is that what you thought? Uh, I, I, never, I never thought that myself, no. <laughs> and I, and, I, um, uh, and they, um, they look around, and I've been, mm-hmm. we've been running this organization now for uh, 35 years, actually, mm-hmm. so... Um, I'm pretty well known in the amateur astronomy community. They write me letters. They say, well, you know, here's my setup. Can I contribute to your research? And I write back to them. Uh, I write lots of letters every Mm -hmm. day. Wow. Uh, uh, And uh, in some cases, it's, you know, like a small child in uh, Uzbekistan or something. uh, (laughs) It's uh, amazing. So that's, I don't get too much from that. But the... um, but interestingly enough, we actually got a very good station. There was an Air Force intelligence officer mm-hmm. stationed in Uzbekistan mm-hmm. who uh, said, can I contribute to your research? Well, turns out our research needs global coverage because mm-hmm. we follow star, follow the brightness of stars all the, you know, over 24-hour period. Right. So we need stations all around the earth. Mm-hmm. And Uzbekistan was a, 
a good Amazing. place. And he was a great, great observer, and he would send us data back on the brightness of stars. On he was sort of spying on Al-Qaeda mm -hmm. by day and oh stars by night. Don't tell us any more about this guy. Yeah. I just want him to live through the next Star Talk episode. Okay. <laughs> but you know what I love of the many things I love about this story is it combats the notion that science is elitist because, you know, it really is a subject of just almost childlike curiosity, right, relating to the natural world. That's really what it is. It's got to be the least elitist subject imaginable and yet we have this reputation i think of being an elitist field do you think that that's true that we have that reputation well uh we do to some extent um it uh, I, I have to say it's it's uh, it's greatly mitigated by mm -hmm. the uh um, great successes at popularizing astronomy mm -hmm. uh of which you are you know a very prominent example of course thank you uh, and as this program is matter <laughs> yeah. of fact and, but, uh, and absolutely absolutely yeah. neil is uh, mm -hmm. um you know uh, uh tremendous energy and yeah. uh, tremendous commitment to everybody mm -hmm. i the last time i went uh, neil and i are both big baseball fans <laughs> went to a y game with yankee stadium and of course everybody recognizes neil and people yeah. come up to him <laughs> yeah it's and crazy. they say uh I remember this one guy in particular said, cause they don't know how to ask a question about astronomy when right. the great Neil Tyson is there. <laughs> and, but so they can't figure it out, but they have a friend, you know, who's right. an amateur astronomer. They call up their friend and say, hey, I'm in the next row here to Neil Tyson. Do you have a question about astronomy? And they, hi they hand Neil the cell phone oh my to God. answer him, and he answers cheerfully. That's so sweet. This is I know. really sweet. I know. He's got a really great demeanor. <laughs> like, I'm much grumpier than Neil. <laughs> Amazing. So we were talking earlier about blowing things up, um, and, uh, and we were talking about the cataclysmic variables, but there is another phenomenon in which well-known things blow up spectacularly, and that's the supernova event. And you've been doing some research on this recently. Yeah, well, I mostly study um, what happens you know, after the supernova event, yeah. because what basically happens with, with a massive star mm -hmm. is instead of just blowing off its outer layers, that has a, thermo, that has a nuclear an instability in the core. Uh -huh. So that's the yeah. really dangerous place to ignite an instability in mm -hmm. the core of the star. That will, will blow up most or all of the star. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it's a... Now, isn't that good for us? Uh, well, And this is I one of the things it... I really distinctly remember from okay. your astronomy class when I first okay. took it, how it's important for life well, that a star blows up. If stars never blew up, we're pretty much going to say goodbye to emergence of life. If stars never blew up, we would be mostly hydrogen and helium creatures. Mm -hmm. That would be pretty uninteresting. Pretty boring. Very high-pitched voices. <laughs> Very high-pitched voices, but helium has no chemistry at all. <laughs> but if, you, if we breathed it, uh, we'd all have high-pitched voices. Sound like Donald Duck. But the, um, yeah. Not so, you were mention so a different we need, Donald. We need the supernova. The stars manufacture the heavy elements, uh, but, uh, but then they have to blow up. Yeah, if they didn't blow up, the right. So it's and so they do blow up, and that's why you get everything up to uranium. Yeah. So um, you've been studying supernovas. What's new? Yeah. What's new in the field of stars blowing up? I mean, supernova events are amazing because they're one of the few things we can see with the naked eye. Yeah. Like, one day there's nothing there because yeah. the star was too faint to see. Yeah. Then it blows up, and suddenly you see this big object in the sky. Why can you see it after it blows up? Why isn't it just gone? Well, basically, a couple things happen. First of all, it's an enormous cloud. It becomes you mm -hmm. know, very, very big, uh, much bigger than any star. And it's still it's still dense, mm -hmm. so they stay bright for, well, the, the famous, the most famous one of all, the one that made the Crab Nebula. It happened in the year 1054 on July 4th, hmm. patriotically enough. How do we know but, it was 1054? Is that from historical records, or is that? Yeah, the historical records, Chinese and Korean records of a bright thing appearing in the constellation Taurus, uh, and they described where it was, and we know. They wrote it all down in books that we can read now, and we can. Their constellations are now understood by Chinese scholars, uh -huh. and uh, we know where it was, and that is the where we now see a cloud of gas that is expanding slowly outward. So you know that, that okay, a supernova happened there. 
Yeah. And then you're like, all right, well, then that's they what it. they must have written. And you say both Chinese and Korean scholars wrote about it separately. They wrote about it separately. And uh, we can see it now. There's a big, we can see it now. It's very faint now. You need a, a moderate how, how long, telescope. How long was it bright for? Well, it was uh, visible in daylight for a month. Hmm. And in it, daylight. In daylight. That's insane. For a month. That's like the only thing that's visible in daylight for us is the moon, very, very, very rarely. Uh, that's right. <laughs> well, the sun, of course. But well, the sun, okay, sun yeah. is daylight. <laughs> sun is but it, was visible, it was visible in daylight, and then it was visible in the night sky for, I believe, two years. Hmm. In the night sky, meaning naked eye, because they right. didn't have any telescopes. And, and then, then, of course, faded. Nobody knew about it. And then the telescope was invented, and suddenly it came back. To history, to history. And then you're like, all right, it's still there. It was just, there it is. And then we have, mm. it was figured out. Uh, so we can still detect it a full millennium later. We can see it a thousand years later, yeah. And we can still see it expanding outward. It's still expanding outward. Oh, yeah, it's still expanding outward, about a thousand kilometers a second. Pretty mm. hefty rate of expansion. Wow. And, yeah. uh, and so it's giving all of that good stuff. The carbon, the heavy metals, yeah. all that good stuff to its own environment. That's right. And then, how does that lead to emergence of life? Like that can't, like it blows out, and then what? You're asking me to now on Star Talk explain the origin yeah. of life. Yeah. Well, no, not the origin of life, but I'm saying like <laughs> so. So the nebula expands outward, but then then what? Like, how do you make a solar system out of that? Well, it, it has to mix in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, all this stuff is just going to get mixed in the galaxy. Basically, about every 30 years, another supernova in some other part of the galaxy mm -hmm. goes off. Mm -hmm. All this stuff mixes, and um, now the biologists have to come yeah. in and tell us uh, how we're going to get That's another out. episode. <laughs> yeah, they, they should so get to you work. were saying our solar system was the consequence of multiple supernova events. Absolutely. Snow plowing, Absolutely. all of this great stuff together, this, yeah. this heavy elements together to make rocky planets and yeah. water and all this yeah. good stuff. Yeah. That's not a bad scenario. Yeah, and there are even, there are even, there's even a, this one theory that says the origin of life, and you're probably familiar with this mm -hmm. theory, that says the origin of life actually was the result of a nearby supernova. Because, and, you know, a nearby supernova, yeah. you know, what it does is it sort of compresses the, re, the, the yeah. blast wave from the, yeah. it actually compresses the gas around it. So mm -hmm. you can sort of form new structures yeah. in the debris. Like of a, a snowplow. Like, like a snowplow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's, so we were asking you earlier, what's new in the supernova world that you're working on? Well, the big, the big thing that most people that study supernovae, this is mm -hmm. the, a uh, great discovery was made in 1998, yeah. dark energy, and it was made yeah. possible by looking at the, uh, super, there is a class of supernovae that yeah. have exactly the same intrinsic brightness. Okay. Okay, so by looking at how faint they are in the sky, you can determine their distances very okay. precisely. Yeah. They're in galaxies. Yeah. Those galaxies share in the Hubble law of expansion. Mm -hmm. And so they were the key to being able to basically test the velocity distance relationship which mm -hmm. i'm perhaps so it's like it's like i have a light bulb here i move it further away and because i know a lot about that light bulb i can tell its distance yeah because i know a lot about it That's ahead right. of time exactly so so i can place that these light bulbs which are the supernova are actually in other galaxies and i can tell that they're moving away that they're and therefore measure the expansion rate of the universe That's right. I knew that, but I was just recapping. For a fact. It was a device. So that's, that's, that's the big thing about supernovae. Our particular research <laughs> is a little more uh, on the remnant yeah. because many supernovae leave neutron stars behind. When you, when you blow mm -hmm. up the star, right. you don't necessarily blow up the whole star. Yeah. You blow up the outer part of the star. The inner part of the star could be so compact mm -hmm. that the gravity can survive that. And that frequently happens. And it makes neutron stars. And there's thousands of neutron stars in our galaxy. Some are in binary star systems. Those mm -hmm. are the ones I like. Mm -hmm. Because we study these binary star systems. We can measure their periods. Mm -hmm. We can measure their rotation. So what is a black widow pulsar? A black widow pulsar... Uh, is a very tight binary, like a cataclysmic uh -huh. variable, uh -huh. where the two stars are so close together that the pulsar beam, uh -huh. you know, pulsars are like a big... So pulsar's a neutron star. It's a rapidly rotating neutron star uh -huh. with a big sort of searchlight beam yeah. of charged particles searching around, going mm -hmm. around. Typically it's a lighthouse. 
Yeah, like a lighthouse, like a mm -hmm. lighthouse going out around, say, about 30 times a second, or say, 10, 10 to 30 times a second. So if you're at a specific point in space, you just see it flashing on and off. You'd see pulse, 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 right. pulse, pulse. So instead of a 24-hour period, it's a, it's a pretty fast period. It's less than a second. second. Most of them are less than a second. Some of them yeah. are a few seconds. Yeah. But, you know, right about that. And so what happens is if there's another star that's in the vicinity of it, it keeps getting hit, 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 hit with all this energy, these these electrically charged particles that, uh, that are emitted keep getting, they keep bombarding the other star and basically uh, it's Black Widow Pulsar. It, mm. uh, the companion eats it. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> I did, before we close the show, want to um, ask Matt to throw us a cosmic query to bring us back to remember that we were on this day, August 21st. Joe, your shirt has... Um, uh, where will you be on August 21st, 2017, the Great American Eclipse? Where is the eclipse in that picture? The eclipse like, is down there in Tennessee. In Tennessee. Yeah. Okay, but you are not in Tennessee. So let's bring this back to the eclipse day, and I think we have a cosmic we, query. We have one cosmic query from Ben Ratner, and that is, on a planet from a binary system, what would a solar eclipse look like, and could a star create the eclipse of the other star? Well, could a star create an eclipse of the other star? Absolutely. Um, if it was a faint star occulting a bright star, that would be a, you know that would be like what we saw today, or what people in totality saw today. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, it could be a bright star occulting a faint star, and nobody would care. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, like the sun occulting a distant star. We don't care. Yeah, we don't <laughs> care about that. And uh, and so now I have to have a planet in there too. And then the second thing, yeah, you've got a you've got a planet. So you, there's you, you're on you've the got planet. a binary star, and I guess there's a planet somehow orbiting in some. I imagine the orbit would be you, weird as well. Are you on that planet, or are you on a different planet? I believe you are on that planet. Is my understanding. <laughs> okay. And then and then let's say there's a moon as well. Yeah. Well. Oh, please. <laughs> well, the moon probably is a small moon, so right. I'm going to neglect the moon. But yeah, no, I was assuming the planet, the planet, planet yeah, the planet, planet would normally see the binaries, and then every so often they would line up, and one would go in front of the other. I'm not sure it would be celebrated in any particular way, unless it was the faint one going in front of the, the bright one. Because well, that, so that's really what creates the spectacle. Actually, maybe you could mention how we use that technique to look for exoplanets. So oh, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, if you um, very popular technique uh, for uh, turns out extremely uh, useful technique for finding exoplanets is just look at a nearby star and just watch it for continuously, say for six months or so. We have spacecraft and doing this. Mm -hmm. Humans can't do that, but spacecraft can do it. And I'm very patient. What happens? What happens occasionally is that a planet will wander. In, if there is a planet up there, it may wander across the face, and you'll see the face of that. You won't see light from the planet, but you'll see that the light from the star has a little dip in it. Right. And then it's an eclipse. Four, four days later, it has another little dip in it, mm -hmm. and then another little dip in it, mm -hmm. and then another little dip. And after about ten of these things, you say, "Hey, it's regular." So if it's regular, it's not like you know the weather or something. So it something's is, orbiting. There's something orbiting. Yeah, and it. we're literally using the eclipse yeah. of a tiny planet, so it's nowhere near a total eclipse. It's an absolutely teeny, but tiny, just enough to eclipse. reduce the light intensity. Yeah, so that from Earth we can tell that the star has has planets, and we can start to count the number of planets they have and estimate their sizes. I mean, that's a spectacular use of of the eclipse a phenomenon, basically. So we see other eclipses from Earth besides just. Solar yeah, and lunar. Yeah, I, I forgot all about that. Isn't that great? Yeah, I know, really. it just occurred to me just now. Yeah, right. You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jan Eleven, your All Stars host. My co host, Matt Kirshen. Hey. Wave, wave to the audio audience and a couple of video audiences. And our expert guest, scientist astronomer Joe Patterson. Thanks so much, guys, for coming. Thank it was you. so fun. Thanks, Let's keep Jan. talking when the cameras are off. Salutations from the shadow of the moon, August 21st. See you next time. This is Star Talk.